Don't you fools. You brought it on yourselves. Everything would have come right if you'd only left me alone. You me near madness with your peering through the keyholes and peeping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. There's a souvenir for you. I'll show you who I am and what I am. <laughs> Look, he's all eaten away. podcast the monster Ooh. rally well so, oh no i wrote a song i wrote a new song for the monster <laughs> for our theme song i didn't tell these guys about it welcome to the monster rally we've got mike and james and gary talking about all things that are scary it, it's a work in progress i am a, <laughs> a very bad singer i'm a professional musician and that's a fact <laughs> that is a fact i'm a professional musician it's showcased right not there. a singer though I am not a singer, no. Uh, this is Gary, and I am joined, as always, by James and Mike. Hello, fellas. Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> we haven't done that in a few episodes. Uh, today we're talking about uh, The Invisible Man, brought to you by the NRA. And I am really, really <laughs> excited to talk about this movie, guys. All right, this is, what, where are we up to now? We're on episode uh, this is four. Episode four. This is episode, episode four. four. And we can say that we are officially on uh, iTunes now. It's true. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim, Tim, Tim Cook uh, is a coward who didn't want the smoke, and he uh, <laughs> finally, finally had the balls to put us on Apple Podcasts. And you know what it is, James? Last episode on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> you know what it is, James? He listened to our Frankenstein episode, and he goes, fucking Mike is wrong. That, uh, that is not the greatest movie ever made. He is wrong. And he, he him and I had to have a conversation. Look, Mike doesn't know. He doesn't know yeah. what he's talking about. He's never seen a real movie before. It's yeah, fine. True. That's very true. <laughs> You're busy watching Godard. So here we are, guys, talking about The Invisible Man, 1933, Michael? That's correct. Released on November 13th. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 wait, Mike, wait, Mike, Mike. Mike. Everybody Mike. just relax. Mike, I made a promise to our fan base last time <laughs> I was on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Which was the last time we had this show. I think, unless you guys do it without me. Might be the last time we did this show. Maybe. This, this might be it. the last time you guys hear a rap. And it is not the Monster Rally rap. I wrote an Invisible Man specific rap song. Exclusive. I did not get a chance to get into the studio and record it. Dr. Dre is busy. Um... Dr. Scholes is busy. All the doctors of rap are busy. So I didn't get in there quite yet. But it might happen if, if people like this rap. Oh, they're going to like it. Let us know in the reviews, in your in your uh, four-star uh, reviews, or whatever the highest you can give us on Apple, please. It could be four and a quarter stars. It could be four <laughs> Whatever you want to give us, give it. But the, this rap, I, I'm very proud of it. I need a beatbox. And who better to give me a beatbox than my partner in rhyme, Latin Beats? <laughs> James. All right, Latin Beats with a Z. Hit it. Oh, God. Okay. Are we ready? And. 
little bit, a little bit slower, Mike. This is a, this is a, this is a, a, a love oh, jam. Crying out loud. <laughs> More of a D'Angelo. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah we're, we're gonna take it down a notch. Okay, yeah. All right, Latin beats. Visible. I'm invisible, baby. Invisible. I'm invisible, baby. Invisible. I'm invisible, baby. Invisible. I'll break in your house. I'll sleep on your couch. I'll take what I can because I'm invisible, man. Invisible. I'm invisible, baby. Invisible. I'm invisible, baby. Invisible. I'm invisible, baby. Invisible. I took Mono Kane. It made me insane. I derailed a whole fucking train. Invisible. Invisible, baby. Invisible. I'm invisible, baby. Invisible. Uh, invisible, baby. Invisible. A whole fucking train. All right. Well, that was the Invisible Man rap. How is that not over the end credits of this oh, film? I don't boy. know. You know, it's the one that I hate the least. <laughs> All right, we're getting there then. So, because I put more than uh, I didn't improv it on the spot, and I wrote it down while I was peeing two seconds ago. <laughs> yeah, hey, it yeah. shows. It really shows. I mean, I don't even really need to do a plot summary. I took I Mono Kane. I did it. It made me insane. I derailed a fucking train. I feel like yeah. that's that sums up this movie in a nutshell. Yeah, I think we're I think we're done. This is the shortest oh, episode we've done. Fucking hold on, hold on, Mike, hit it again. Again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna improve my verse. Okay, do it up. And one, two, a one, two. I took Mono Kane. It made me insane. I derailed a fucking train because I'm Claude Rains. Huh? Huh? No. <laughs> nice. Okay. Okay. That's huh? good. That's good. Huh? I like huh? it. <laughs> huh? That was bad. So the Invisible Man, brought to you by the NRA and sponsored by Bass Beers, in what I, I have to assume is the first. Um, product placement ever in a movie because she's like, I'll take him up a bass beer. And then you see bass beer signs everywhere. Is that is that true, Mike? You're a historian on product yeah, placement. I'm, I'm actually not sure, but you you would you'd have to surmise that there had to have been some sort of deal put in place because that is some pretty very like uh in your face product placement. So uh yeah, n- n- nothing uh that I found in in uh, the research though. And then uh. As I said, what's going on with the NRA sponsorship here? Did they, like, co-produce this movie? No, that was, like, a pretty common thing. Like, when you see movies around, like, uh, World War II, like, a lot of films were doing that. That wasn't just exclusive to this film. But uh, I had almost forgot that they had an NRA-sponsored uh, um, title card before this particular one. But, yeah, that's, like, super um, common, especially during this time in Hollywood. Everyone's trying to do their part for the boys. There's not even a single gun in this movie. No. Well, there's maybe those not like, like there's those like paintbrush guns. Yeah, like maybe not drawn. I mean, a lot of the policemen must be carrying them. I don't know if they ever like get to the point where they're drawing them because they can't see. I don't think British police officers carry guns. They carry like those sticks. Those little batons, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are those, those umbrellas? <laughs> Nightsticks. Nightsticks, but the bobby ones, the ones that look like a little bat. What are those? No, called? they're umbrellas. They're umbrellas that they never actually undo. They just keep them. <laughs> the oh, it's because it's because they're mods. They they bring them on their little vespas. No, right? that little like that little black yeah. stick that looks like a yeah. bat. What is that? Yeah. It's like a baton, right? Yeah. Well, they no, didn't it's call it a name like a bobby stick or something. A little sure. bobby stick. You know, a nightstick. That's fine. <laughs> we'll go with that. Our listeners I think to know this we... day, the police in England still carry those. I don't think they carry guns in England. 
No, that's one of the reasons that England doesn't have a gun problem. True. But has a huge crime problem. <laughs> <laughs> but alternatively have a, a huge crime problem, yeah. Well, a lot of stabbings, though. That's true. Jack the Ripper, they could have stopped in if they had a gun. Right? Well, no, Seriously. they had to catch the man. They did a very <laughs> bad job at that. So here we are talking about The Invisible Man, 1933. Now, Mike, you can go ahead and tell us that it was released in November. That's correct. November 13th, 1933. <laughs> what stated. else can you tell us about this movie? How did it do at the box office? What's the production? You do your thing. Um, yeah, it was, it's actually pretty interesting. Um, so shortly after the success of Dracula, um, it was Richard L. Shire who uh, contributed work to Frankenstein and The Mummy and Robert Florey. Um, they originally suggested the H.G. Wells story to be adapted, um, to be adapted, but the Lemleys rejected it, citing the cost and the effects complexities to adapt it. And before I continue, poor Robert Flory. <laughs> like again, another huge film. He was supposed to. He was originally linked to Dracula, and for reasons that were still not clear on, got removed or left that project. Then he was linked to H to this adaptation, um, and then it didn't pan out either. So just uh, just to. Just what I found interesting, um, and James and I could talk about this. I know both of us read this book this week, by it's the way. True. Um, it's true. H.G. Wells was yeah. still alive when Very they much. made this movie. Which yeah, was... he, had, uh, he had script approval. Yeah, yeah. And th- like this is the first movie in the series. Like, Bram Stoker wasn't alive, I don't think. And Mary Shelley was like way dead when that movie came out. So mm-hmm. um, H.G. Wells was still alive and was like, I, I like doing my research on this because you found out a lot about H.G. Wells. He really did like start science fiction. Like he mixed yeah. like, oh, yeah. big time. science and when, fiction. And when this film time. came out too, like the craze of H.G. Wells' work was sort of like at an all-time high. Like everybody was reading his material. So although like the Lemleys initially rejected this shortly after Dracula came out, it was the success of Frankenstein that it was kind of brought back up again with Karloff, of all people, considered to star in it as well as the Wolfman, weirdly enough, with Flory again attached to the Wolfman, which we know didn't pan out. So. Uh, I think it's I think it's very interesting that Karloff was initially attached and then they said no because his voice was too boring. So I guess they must have listened to Mike's thoughts on the mummy <laughs> when they were yeah, casting they, this. They, <laughs> yeah, they knew. Uh, yeah, well, all yeah. that great dialogue he has in Frankenstein, really. <laughs> really yeah, I know. <laughs> Actually, yeah, like, interestingly enough, it was it was Reigns' voice which got him the role, which doesn't you know sound particularly surprising, except that it was because they heard him while he was auditioning next door for a different role that he didn't get, and yeah. uh, the director. Like, hey, that guy's got a very interesting voice. Let's check him out. Yeah, it's it it is pretty interesting. I mean, like you know, when when you think about the history, it's it's like it's not surprising that they would go for Karloff, considering he was kind of like the star. You know, he was like the the king of horror at that point. And of course, this is all like within the studio system and contract players, so you could understand that they would want to bring Karloff back on it. But luckily that didn't work out. So it, it was a mixture of like, they didn't universal didn't want to wait for Robert Flory to work out the scripting kinks and then all of like the effects challenges. So Karloff was just assigned to James Wales as uh, the old dark house the year previously um, to the invisible man being released. You mentioned that HG Wells, like um, was kind of, was kind of popular at the time or adaptations, kind of like how like Stephen King was for yeah, very the 80s much. and the nineties. And, and now, um, 
this was, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to sound real stupid. This was prior to the Orson Welles War of the Worlds uh, radio recording, right? That was in yeah. the 40s? Mm-hmm. Correct. You guys think Orson Welles and H.G. Wells are related? Do you think anyone's ever thought that before? Because I just thought that. No, they're not related. No. You don't You don't know that. <laughs> I talked to Orson <laughs> before we got on the show, yeah. <laughs> you, you don't know that. And I, Yeah, you're right. I, he had script approval for this, which was, like, really cool. Like, that's something we see now with, with a lot of authors and stuff. Which, if you think about it, makes a lot of sense because compared to Dracula and Frankenstein, both based on novels, this is the first one that is anywhere close to the actual source material. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I think the the biggest the biggest addition is the uh, the love story aspect of it, which is I would say the worst part of the movie. Because it was nothing. Oh. It was it was a glass of water in a uh, the middle of I don't know. Hey, all the don't you talk bad about Gloria Stewart? She was in the news again this week. Do you guys know that? She was in the news again this week. Yeah, I saw a lot of articles popping up on like the the movie sites on Facebook, being like, "Check out this alternate ending for Titanic." Boom! Yeah. She's the old lady from Titanic. Yeah, guys. she plays old Rose. Yeah, that's crazy. crazy. Don't watch yeah. the alternate ending of Titanic. She almost kills herself, and Bill Paxton almost kills himself. It's a thing. It's oh, jeez. Good, good lord. <laughs> but continue on, Mike. Tell us about the production of the. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's just pretty interesting, you know, going again that Karloff was uh, linked to it, and that obviously didn't pan out because uh, James Wales was pretty dead set on hiring uh, Claude Rains. But following Flory leaving Universal entirely after just a series of strained relations, which obviously he, he, he was so close, but yet so far to helming not one, but three of the Universal monster films, and they never panned out. So he moved on, but um, shortly after he left, uh, Cyril Gardner, who was predominantly for comedies like The Royal family of broadway and perfect understanding as well as ea dupont who did 1925's variety a really really famous silent film and uh, 1928's moulin rouge they were all linked to the project before james wales um ultimately landed on it but another thing that i thought was interesting and i'm sure that you guys will find this very interesting and you could almost see it happening that before uh, claude rains was so like officially selected to take the lead role they considered colin clive for it which i think would have actually been awesome too but mm. obviously we all know claude rains did a phenomenal job but i could have totally seen claude uh, colin clive do justice to this role too you wouldn't have been able to see him do anything <laughs> it's weird that nicole kidman was in moulin rouge back in the 30s she looked really great for her right age. i know that's what i thought <laughs> <laughs> that was the uh the only person I can remember that was in that movie. Ewan McGregor? Ewan McGregor. Okay. John and Leguizamo. Pink? Pink? No, that was... Pink, did the song, the song right? with Little yeah. Ken <laughs> and Christina Aguilera, yeah. That yeah, was... that was Dirty Christina. That was X-Tina. <laughs> yeah. um, just another note that I wanted to say, because I thought it was interesting, of another pretty famous um, person that 
kind of uh, straight into this production was Preston Surges, who, of course, is known for such classics as The Lady Eve, Sullivan's Travels, and The Palm Beach Story. He took a crack at the adaptation, which set the film in Russia at the time of the revolution, which Whale almost immediately dumped, opting to make a more faithful adaptation of the novel with uh, the screenwriter R.C. Sheriff, who was later nominated for Best Screenplay on 1939's uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. But pretty interesting that Preston Surges almost, you know, was at the helm of the script. Yo, I watch Goodbye, Mr. Chips every Thanksgiving. That... I thought so. Right after Moonlight and Pretzels? <laughs> no, no, I'm not even, like, Moonlight and Pretzels, yeah, I've never seen that shit. But I do watch Goodbye, Mr. Chips every Thanksgiving. Do you really? Yeah, he's, like, family's house, and her step-uncle guy is, like, obsessed with that movie. And he's always like, Gary, you gotta watch this movie with me. So I, I instead of watching football with everybody else, I have to watch Goodnight, Mr. Chips, and I always fall asleep. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> I didn't think I'd be talking about Goodnight, Mr. Chips, but here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Here we are. So, so this is not. This wasn't what Universal wanted James Whale to do, right? They they wanted they wanted Frankenstein too. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think that they were just really hesitant to jump into it just because, again, they were afraid of the cost and just the mere idea of trying to bring an invisible creation. Uh, believably to the screen so they were really hesitant at that but that kind of that kind of um kind of spins into what i was going to say onward that it was once whale signed on to it he worked really closely with john p fulton and fulton was the guy who was really responsible to, for all these innovative um effects work that we see uh he was nicknamed the doctor by his colleagues for pulling off all sorts of absolute miracles on the screen that's he contributed to what's that that's a good nickname I know, right? The Doctor. He contributed to virtually all of Universal's horror offerings, including Dracula, which uh, he created those glass shots of Castle Dracula and its surrounding environments, which we were like, uh... we talked at length about in that episode. Um, he ultimately left Universal in 1945, but after that, he won an Oscar in uh, 45 for uh, Wonder Man, starring Danny Kaye, and he would later net uh, even more Oscars for The Bridges of Toko Rai in 45 and The Ten Commandments in 1956. So, yeah, pretty phenomenal but uh yeah his work in the invisible man which we're obviously going to get to is just fantastic still holds up after all these years i gotta say 100 percent. i was very surprised with how well the effects held up there's definitely there's definitely spots where it's it's super cringeworthy but when you think about they were the first ones doing anything like that it's this movie is very impressive. Who? Oh, who? Who? Whose first time was it seeing the Invisible Man for this episode? Did it? Had anyone? Has it? Everyone saw I've it before? Seen it, yeah, no, it this movie's point. awesome. I love it. Okay, show. good. I um, yeah. To that point, James, like, I want. We don't need to bury the lead on this. The special effects in this movie are fantastic. They really are. Uh, they they pull shockingly off some, good. Yeah, when you think about this movie is ninety years, almost ninety years old, and you're like, holy cow, some of this stuff looks really great. I watched it with my wife last night and she's like, how do they do that? I'm like, I legitimately don't know. Yeah. It, it it's did like, such it's a like, good job. It's mind boggling. It, it looks better than CGI that they put out in the mid two thousands. You it know, what better I'm than, it, it's more impressive than some CGI now. And I think we, we're having this discussion last night. Like you, we we're so entrenched in like, Oh, there's another star Wars or Avengers. And of course the CGI, like you don't even think about how good it is. This probably blew people's minds when this movie came out. Oh, oh for yeah. sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, all, it was, like, really critically acclaimed. And, it, you know, it, it was the 
biggest success for Universal since Frankenstein. 80,000 patrons of New York's Roxy Theater saw the film in its first four days of release. The film single-handedly righted the financial hardships that Universal was having at the time. So, yeah, for all of uh, the Lemley's hesitation, the fact that they kind of finally went in with it paid off in spades. Now, this came out 33, which, if I'm correct, is the same year as King Kong? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And King Kong was Universal. How did King Kong do? Do you know? Uh, Universal was RKO, or uh, King Kong was RKO, oh, which is okay. uh, Warner Brothers. Plebeian. For some reason, I always associated with Universal. Probably because yeah. Mike and I were in Universal and we went on some King Kong ride or something. That, that's yeah, probably it. Yeah, it, it always jumps around. That's the thing. I mean, the King Kong attraction was in Universal when Universal Studios first, you know, opened. And then the King Kong version, Confrontation, is in, like, the California location. So it, it's confusing. Okay. All right. Well, I apologize. I was kind of looking forward to us maybe doing King Kong on the show one day. Which, I mean, we, I guess we could still could. I think the um, the one that came out in like 2005, the Steven Soderbergh one, that was directed, uh, that was um, <laughs> uh, produced by Universal, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's amazing. Like Steven Soderbergh has to be the guy with the most diverse filmography oh, ever. Shit. I mean, from things like Traffic to The Mummy to King Kong, the man does it all. I believe and G.I. Joe. I believe that he did the uh, the 1990s Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Yes. Silverberg directed that one, right? Yes. And also Jane Austen's Mafia. We are going to be sending people, we're going to send people to Steven Soderbergh's IMDb like crazy. I didn't know he did all that. I mean, you can edit Wikipedia, so maybe uh, maybe we will. Maybe maybe some. Get on uh, it. Some, some uh, keen, uh, keen-eyed uh, listener will edit his Wikipedia page for us. What else you got, Mike? Um, that's basically it. I mean, it's it's just a pretty interesting production all around. Uh, you know, the filming took place in late June of '33 and then concluded in late August. But two additional months were spent on these really complex effects. And you know, we're going on and on. We're going to obviously talk about it a lot. But yeah, just completely groundbreaking, unbelievably. Um, <clears throat> innovative innovative um and just like the processes that they went through to do it they would film scenes with the actors minus um claude rains they would they would stage it and film it as such and then they would go into um a black set that was kind of clothed in uh, black velvet and then put the performer claude rains in black velvet from head to toe and they would use like all these sort all um, different processes, and then you know d- d- go back and forth with the negatives and putting that over the 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 previous shot with um, all the actors, like very very technical stuff um, that they did to achieve it. But like it just all seems so seamless when you watch it. it it's crazy. I had a question, kind of on topic, but it's a good good episode to bring this up in. I think every movie that we've covered so far has had a winter release date if i'm correct um either february january november around then um do you know like why that is is that an old time box office people are going to go to the movies more in the winter time obviously now we associate big temple movies with the summer and that that probably changed over the last you know 40 years but is that something they used to do put their movies primarily in the winter time I'm not sure. That's like a really interesting observation that I 
sort of noticed too because like obviously for contemporary audiences like us you would think like oh this is like a big tentpole horror movie like why wouldn't they release it around halloween time which well obviously like halloween wasn't as big of a deal as it is now compared to then but as to why they were dropping it when they were i'm not entirely sure like why that was or if it was just a matter of like that's how the production worked out because as you can see like from the time that they filmed to them wrapping and then releasing it's a pretty tight three to four month window the turnaround was very quick in those days so i think it was just a matter of once things are done we promote it quickly and get it out as soon as possible where now you know the 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 road to release and all the promotion that goes along with it is so embedded into a film's release strategy that's what I was going to ask. Did they have like predetermined release dates or to your point, or was it like, all right, it's done. It's going to take us a month to edit it and then a month to promote it. And we can get it out in two or three months. Is that, I, I, don't, I don't know how that worked. That That's what it seems like. I mean, everything that I see, they, there's no like real um, uh, research <laughs> or details into that. It was, it just seemed like a pretty steady um, pipeline of like their, their, production schedule they would put it in and then you know they knew that the turnaround was going to be what it was going to be and also again this is the this is the studio days where the studios dominated and you're dealing with contract players so it was almost as soon as you got off of one project you were being you know pushed and pulled any which way to get onto another project or be loaned out to somebody you know like you, you were constantly being put in like i mean some of these actors that didn't live particularly long lives or anything if you go onto their imdb like they did a tremendous tremendous amount of films in such a short period of time maybe like a decade or two and their imdb is like unbelievable the the star of this movie claude rains we touched on him a little bit now i know claude rains i knew before man? Even, yeah before even invisible man i knew it from the rocky horror song <laughs> claude rains was the invisible man this is our most musical episode for sure um obviously and uh that's where i, I kind of heard about him first and then you know i i always associate him with invisible man whereas look karloff and lugosi and and cheney they they've played multiple different characters i don't know if we're going to see claude rains again in this in this series we will we'll see him i believe one more time as uh as cheney's father in the wolfman yeah oh true yes wolfman does have a lot of heavy hitters in it what what blows my mind about this is this is only Claude Rains' second movie. It's really his first. He had a small role in a silent film a decade prior. He was a stage actor. Uh, he, yeah. he was a stage actor. He moved to New York. World War I broke out. He moved back to Britain, fought in the war, uh, was involved in a gas attack where he was permanently blinded in his right eye uh 90 of his vision was gone wow as well as uh as well as suffering vocal cord damage which maybe helped him get this role because that voice is so specific and so unique yeah i mean that that's really what drives the the performance here because you would think i mean since he was so really green to the movie industry you would you know any other actor would probably show a lot more hesitance and he did once he really got into the nitty-gritty of what he was signing on for i'm sure he didn't fully anticipate that he was not going to be visually seen in the film 
for about 99% of it. <laughs> um, but he, but he really sells it with, um, you know, his voice. That's really what it is. It's a very commanding voice that goes through many different layers. But, but yeah, to, to your point, James, uh, yeah, it was only his second film, very green to the industry when him and James Whale were, um, you know, on the set working out things. James Whale was kind of giving him reference points as to like, um, you know, more or less using film language, you know, referring to this film or that film or that angle. And Claude Rains had to more or less stop him in his tracks and tell him pretty upfrontly, uh, James, I've only seen about six films to which James Wales kind of freaked out. And he said, okay, you need to go out immediately and start watching films. So Claude Rains, like, took that advice, um, you know, very strongly. And he was going out and seeing roughly three films a day in preparation to kind of understand how the camera works, you know, how an actor operates, you know, in a, you know, on a film stage and whatnot. So pretty fascinating. <laughs> You know, it's weird because Mike has actually only seen six films also, and that's why he thinks Frankenstein is the goddamn best movie ever made. <laughs> I'm going to make you eat those words in another episode. <laughs> <laughs> so Claude Rains had such an interesting career. Oh, yeah. Come, comes out the gate swinging with The Invisible Man and just racks up, you know, title after title. Uh, his his uh, portrayal of Prince John in the Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn Great. is amazing. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington where he's playing that corrupt senator uh, against Stewart's uh, character. Uh, what was his name in uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington? Who did Jimmy Stewart play? Uh, Mr. Chips. Yeah, uh, Mr. Chips. Yeah, correct. <laughs> ah, Mr. Correct. Chips with a side of uh, pretzel and moonlight. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there it is. Oh, he was in Casablanca. Yeah, I mean, one of my yeah, favorites. This dude, this dude crushes it after this yeah. movie, really. Was, and I would in that. Yeah, he he's really one of the great supporting characters in movie history. I mean, every time he pops up in a film, he's phenomenal. He was in 1942's Now Voyager, which is great. 43's Phantom of the Opera, and one of Hitchcock's bests uh, in Notorious, just great. Would you say that out of all of the leading men so far? <laughs> And maybe knowing that we're more or less going to be getting the same leading men until the end of the universal canon, so to speak, mm -hmm. Claude Rains is the best one, right? Like as actor as, or most successful? As a whole, the most successful actor. Um, uh, I, Vincent I Price. I know we're going to see Vincent yeah. Price later on. I was going to say... It's no, kind of we're not going to see Vincent Price later on. We're going to hear him later. <laughs> yeah, I know Vincent Price is coming. Um, Karloff was the Grinch. I mean, that's like timeless. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah Kar Karloff's filmography is pretty wild, and Bella was. Pr but I, I, I know what you're saying. Just as far as diversity and just like how many cornerstone films he appeared in i think if you're talking about as like an overall body of work, I mean, people not not to not to put. Karloff or Lugosi into too much of a box, but they're predominantly known for their horror output, which is iconic, and th they're masters in that field. Whereas I think Vincent Price, he he's he's certainly aligned in that with you know his work with Roger Corman and stuff. But he did just as many important films too, like just loads of stuff. You know, Dragonwick, the Joseph Mankiewicz film, tons of great stuff. But yeah, I think overall, as far as like cornerstone pictures, Claude Rains probably has the advantage over a lot of them. Yeah, I'm gonna throw out another wild card: Gloria Stewart, who was yeah. in Titanic. 
<laughs> and Titanic, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Titanic. It's uh, a monster it's, movie. Not, yeah. And I don't mean like scary monster. It's the monster of a movie. Um, I would reckon to say that Titanic, the movie, is more famous than Titanic, the movie, by the way. I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> I would say Titanic, the ship, is more infamous than famous. Mike and I had this conversation. <laughs> I think James and I, we, I had this conversation separately with you guys at the same time. No, thank you. Um, Kate Winslet's Titanic boobs, the most seen boobs of all time. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, they have to be, right? Yeah. I mean, just pure numbers alone. Right. Yeah. That movie made $2 billion. Yeah. Of, In 97. <laughs> 97 money. Yeah. yeah. A lot of voyeurs. Yeah. Uh, that's what the, that's what Karloff was getting paid per week if you adjusted for inflation. I yeah. Think. <laughs> I don't know. We're, no, we're what, always talking about happening? we're always talking about uh, pay rates in, on this show, and I don't know what Quadrains made. I, maybe like I don't know. James Well let him stay at his house or something. I don't know. We'll get yeah, to that I'm, movie eventually too. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not too sure. The only thing that I could find out on financials for this film is that the budget was around like three hundred and twenty-eight thousand dollars, which again, like <laughs> they're very tiny in comparison to like all the innovative effects work that they did. Well, not about from that. a cast perspective too, we don't see a lot of our our returning kind of um, character yeah. actors in this movie. No Van Sloan, man, is our first yeah. movie without Edward Van Sloan. No, and that and that's that's the thing. I'm happy you brought that up because I had that in my notes too, is that this film is like, it's very um, refreshing in a sense. Yeah, we're not getting a lot of those familiar faces that we had seen kind of jump uh, in and out of films. Like this, for all intents and purposes, is an entirely new cast, although several of them uh, that we, you know, we've mentioned kind of um, several of them will go on. We'll see them in uh, future appearances in the Universal Monster uh, canon. Now, Mike, what was what was the budget for the movie again? I'm not sure on budget or oh, I'm sorry. The budget itself was three hundred and twenty eight thousand. I couldn't find what, how much it made in box office, now, but it made, you know, better okay. than Frank. The, the question I have about that is, yes, compared to movies now, it's a tiny budget. What was what was the budget for most movies then? Do you know off the top of your head, roughly? Uh, I mean, it, it it depends. I mean, th these are movies like these were studio backed movies, and obviously these were way more theatrical, where you're dealing with really elaborate sets and makeup work. You know, like you know, other films that were studio pictures. You know, they didn't have this kind of you know, sort of, you know, other things going on in them that like budget would be eaten up by. So it, it's really hard to gauge. You'd really have to go on like a project, a project, but yeah, of things like this, I mean, I, I would have to imagine in the early thirties, this is probably like as close to as big as you could get at some, cause again, this is like, this is pre wizard of Oz. Like this is pre a lot of like what we consider like, huge huge groundbreaking movie so I, I could only surmise that this is probably as close um as you get to like you, you know tentpole or like a marvel movie or something for their time right right i think um we've talked about drag we could look it up but we're lazy um dracula <laughs> frankenstein mummy they all had budgets ranging from like 150 to 250 300 so probably in the same way yeah i think um, we yeah. did get one character actor that we've seen before. Uh, Mr. Sure Dwight Fry shows up as a reporter. Yeah. For like one line of dialogue. And I'm like, that guy looks like Redfield. Yeah, I almost <laughs> I almost completely missed him. And then I had to double double back and check that out. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time on, on Claude Rains. Um, 
I don't really know if there's anyone else, and I don't mean this offensively, anyone else in the cast we really need to talk a lot about. I wasn't impressed with, other than um, Mrs. Hall, Una O'Connor. Una O'Connor. Awesome in this movie. She brought, oh, yeah. she brought the joke. This is the least horny movie I think I've ever watched. <laughs> But what we've they, only seen six films. I've only so seen six know. films. Uh, what they what they subtracted from with the horniness, they did bring with the comedy because this is the first one with humor. Yeah, with yeah, actual it, humor. Yes. Yeah, it's it's very dark humor for sure, and it it really does that balancing act between horror and comedy really well. Um, yeah, I mean, you guys mentioned Una O'Connor who is great she's a little grating at times with her scream but that sort of became her signature uh her last film role was in billy wilder's witness for the prosecution and she's really great in that but there's a lot of really great we talked about gloria stewart but there's great people all around Uh, william harrigan who plays dr kemp he did the g-men with uh james cagney and henry travers appeared in uh dark victory and primrose path which i just watched a couple days ago who uh Carl Freund was the cinematographer on it, actually. Ooh. Yeah, I know. I was I was really surprised. Wow, uh, Mike's I, I seen seven movies it. now. Yeah, I just watched it. Uh, yeah, Henry Travers I, was also in Shadow of a Doubt, and It's a Wonderful Life, too. There was one point I I did not catch the character's name. Mm. He's the one bumbling cop in it. Oh, I know exactly. Uh, Cosmo, Cosmo Jeffers, I think his name is. Is that who it is? E.E. E. Clive? Yeah, my God. Real, real dum-dum. Is he the one that responds when he goes like, all right. <laughs> His face is melting. Oh. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if it was him. One of the one of the constables. Pretty good. I, I had to I was pouring over IMDB Wikipedia. I could have sworn it was Charles K. Gerard, our our main man Martin from Dracula. That uh, yeah. Wrong. He gave me the same vibes. I think maybe all old British men with mustaches. Yeah. Same. I it's don't that know. like slow, like kind of sarcastic drawl about it. But yeah, that was hilarious. That was one of the funniest parts to me. So let's talk about the plot of this movie, please. Hey, um, Gary, it's a good one. Gary, it's a good plot. <laughs> I'd love for you to tell me what you believe the plot to be. <laughs> I think yes. this is a pretty straightforward plot. This is, in my opinion, easiest to understand of these movies we've watched. Over. In your own words, Gary, tell us so, what the in my own words. About. Mike, hit me with the beat. <laughs> what? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. There's, I'm not going to wrap the plot this time. Wait until we get the Bride of Frankenstein. One snowy night in the most generic sounding town ever, Country Village, a mysterious man checks into a hotel run by Mr. Hall and his insane wife, Mrs. Hall. The man is Jack Griffin. A total douchebag. Griffin wrapped himself in bandages and goggles, so the busybody local darts players aren't sure if he's a criminal, a deformed monster, or a cosplayer at a steampunk convention. Griffin doesn't plan on paying any rent, so Mr. and Mrs. Hall try and kick him out. When Griffin throws Mr. Hall down the steps, the local police are called in. Griffin reveals himself to the angry mob. Griffin is actually invisible! He's the invisible man! Griffin attacks the police officer, strips naked, then runs through the town, stealing bicycles and making jokes about people's hair in one of the best scenes in this movie. (laughs) Griffin goes to visit his peer, Dr. Kemp, and forces him to give him his clothes, his bed, and to do his bidding. Kemp calls for assistance in the form of his employer, Dr. Cranley, and Flora Cranley, 
who I guess is engaged to Griffin. I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure about that aspect of this movie. Dr. Cranley and Kemp have deduced that Griffin has been experimenting with monocane, which causes his invisibility, but also his insanity. Griffin speaks with Flora and tells her his master plan. In his words, to start with a reign of terror. That's how he starts, guys, with a reign of terror. Well, you gotta go bigger, you go home. Yes. Correct. Griffin even states that the moon is frightened of him. This guy has some ego. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a ballsy claim. But he also plans to sell his invisibility to the highest bidder and also to create an invisible army and take over the world. He's got a lot of plans. <laughs> Griffin vows to murder Kemp at exactly 10 p.m. the next day for his betrayal. In the meantime, his reign of terror begins. Ranging from all sorts of misdemeanors like pushing people over and stealing their walking sticks to derailing a fucking train. <laughs> That's really bipolar. Yeah, he runs the gauntlet of just being a nuisance and being a homicidal maniac, a mass murderer. Local police try to trap Griffin and protect Kemp, but Griffin is a super genius, obviously, and figures out their plan. He murders Kemp, and then he has the same weakness as everyone else in the Universal Horror Movie. Guys, goes to sleep. Hey, man, when you're tired, you're tired in these movies. How do you beat someone in a Universal Horror movie? Just wait for them to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, just wait till they run out of gas. <laughs> Local authorities uh, surround Griffin at the uh, farmer from Babe's house, and then they shoot him, and he regains his physical form as he passes away. Yeah. yeah. So That's what happens in this movie. Well, so well let's done. just start right there at the end, guys. Um, yeah, <laughs> you go to sleep, you die. That's yeah, what but, happens. Yeah. I think... You know, this is a pretty um, I mean, you guys will get into it because I think you guys expressed that you read the source material. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's a pretty solid adaptation from what I could surmise from it. But there are still some similarities, I think, to previous Universal Monster movies. I mean, again, we have the mad scientist trope, which we saw in Frankenstein. You have nosy, fearful villagers, which, of course, you know, were, you know, in uh, Dracula and Frankenstein peering into Griffin's uh, windows and stuff. Um he has a he has a girlfriend or a wife who's you know constantly always, um, you know, wondering about his whereabouts and kind of freaking out about his well being and stuff. So there are some shades of similarities, but overall, this really is its own beast. Uh, you know, and, and again, to this predominantly entirely new cast, um, no really uh, carryovers from any of the previous Universal monster movies. So I think that really. The effects work, this new cast and James Whale's direction just kind of like, you know, propel this movie into something uh, very different and, and something really impressive. Yeah, some of the biggest changes from the novel to the screen um, are with Griffin. Uh, in the novel, we're led to believe he's just uh, a crazy person before he becomes insane, uh, invisible. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that he's a crazy person. An asshole. He's an, he's an <laughs> asshole. He's an egomaniac because he's brilliant and he knows it. Right. And they it's a little cagey whether the serum uh, is doing something to his mind or the solitude of not being able to be seen is doing something to his mind or he just that that ego comes to the forefront and he says, 
I can't be caught because I can't be seen. So I'm going to do everything that I want to do no matter what because there are no consequences for my actions when they can't catch me except that there's snow everywhere and I can't go in the city because I get dirty and ooh, fog, you can see me in fog and rain and literally every time it's not just a perfectly still day. There's flaws to the plan is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciated that attention to the detail, both in the book and the movie. When mm-hmm. he's talking with Kemp, he goes, you got to clean under my nails. You got to wash, wash my feet. Like that's the stuff that like they were thinking about internet people tearing this movie apart before <laughs> the internet existed, you know, cause that's the stuff like, yeah. oh, well, wouldn't like if it's no, they would see him or something. They already like HG Wells already thought of that. And I love that. I can't perform my reign of terror. For 20 minutes after I eat, it's kind of like swimming. Yeah, yeah. I, like, I like that. <laughs> that, too. that was a pretty interesting touch that they added. That I was like, oh yeah, I kind of wasn't thinking about that, but the fact that they addressed it, like, good on them. yeah, I, I don't know. It'd really be in his like organs, that. and his organs are clear. Like, does everything mm-hmm. that goes in there stay? I don't know how that works. It needed, I think it needed to acclimate to whatever. So theoretically, there was, there was a page in the script somewhere before it got cut where, Hey, you think we can uh, show some eggs going through his esophagus? There is like, um, I think it's interesting because for much of the film where it's kind of unclear why Griffin would even pursue an invisibility experiment and like what his end game with it is. Obviously we know, um, as the film goes on, he pours his heart out to Flora, Uh, later on and we learn his like dissatisfaction of being some poor chemist and this like hunger for fame drove him to this moment so we get that which is totally acceptable and very easy to relate to i think but um i found out that apparently hg wells this is the one area in the production where he was um initially uh he disapproved of it and he thought the the mind-altering effects of of monocane on griffin that led him down to this path um it didn't work but he he ultimately kind of gave into it and was fine but in the novel i found out this out too that in the novel wells describes griffin as an al- an albino and that's like his sole mm-hmm. reason for turning to invisibility which i think could have worked just as strongly if it was developed the right way but we don't really know for much of the runtime not that you're focused in that because you're sort of in it at that moment like he's in this predicament we don't really care like why he did this or not but they don't really comment on that until that really emotional exchange between griffin and uh flora but it's still interesting nonetheless and i think either route would have would have done fine yeah so wells wells talked about his albinism being the whole the whole reason that he wanted to be invisible to get away from his ostracization is that a word you know what i mean on this podcast it is (laughs) in this world but we find the whole reason that he got the funds he came from a working class family and it's just griffin there's no no first name in the book no first name no fiance it's basically griffin and kemp and then the mm-hmm. i don't even remember if the innkeepers had surnames in it no but we find that griffin got the money for his experiments 
from stealing from his father after he beats him to death. Oh, wow. So in the book, Griffin is arguably worse. Well, that's better that they didn't do that, because if they express that or did it in the film version, that makes it like immediately hard to sympathize with the guy. Like in 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 this, you you, you're like, we're not really sure. I mean, I, I take it as the monocane. I don't know, Mike. He's kind of a dick. <laughs> I mean, like, well, he's not a good person. Well, the thing is, is like, you're, we're, I, at least I take from it. I, I don't think that he's that cruel of a guy. I think that it's just the monocane. I think that when we first get to him, we're seeing the start of it really driving him mad all the way until the end, you know, when he drives, you know, lands a fucking train on a rain of terror. Yes. Do you think. I like where they started, where he already was invisible. Do you yeah. think it would have changed the story or made it better, maybe worse? Like, how do you think it would have impacted the story if we saw him become invisible? We knew him before this. Oh, it'd be worse. You think worse? It's nobody cared who I was before I put the mask on. <laughs> sure, I mean, sure, nobody like... gives a shit about Griffin before. That's it's part of the reason why I hate. I hate the scenes with the fiance. I don't care if she was the the old lady in Titanic. I don't care. Those are the worst parts of this movie. Oh, I disagree. Because they they were added. There's there are more interesting conversations. The stuff I think the scenes with Kemp are so fraught because mm-hmm. you know that Griffin's gonna get him. Yeah, he's gonna, he's gonna get him. Yeah, I don't I don't think I think that if they would have shown us that he got there. I don't know if it would have hurt, but like, I think that we would probably be sitting here being like that they're fine. But like, I think it would have maybe weighed the film down a little bit. I think we would have been talking more about pacing issues at that point. I think that the, the starting point of this film, like what Gary said, I think it's great because we kind of get all that. We can only surmise like, oh, he done fucked up. Like he did something. Now he's in this predicament where he is like, um, he's on the lamb now. He's like taken up in this hotel um, and he's already invisible. He's trying to work and people are prying on him. So I think it's a great place to start because now we're like in this predicament with him. No, and I agree. I think that's the, the way to go. I'm just thinking from an audience perspective and almost commending the, the screenwriters and, and, the, and James Well for not doing that, not taking that easy route because it seems like, oh, we need to explain things. We need to over explain things to the audience, which, which movies still do to this day sometimes. So yeah. I, I I was just saying that I think that's a great great thing that they didn't do that. Yeah, for sure. One hundred percent. And this movie clips through, it moves. There aren't the giant gaps in story where you have to guess, as we've seen previously. And again, this is a solid adaptation of the book. The book starts with him entering a tavern on a blustery night, mm-hmm. wrapped up in bandages. Right away, you're wondering, who is this masked man? What's up with the bandage boy? Well, those are some <laughs> wild goggles to wear at night, you know? It's... Yeah. Bandage boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Episode four, bandage boy. Well, that, boy, was, yes. that was the other, that was a possible name for the mommy that they throw out as well. Ah, uh, uh, yes, yes. It yes, all yes. comes back around, boys. It yeah. all comes back to the mommy, that masterpiece. <laughs> you know it. Yeah, um... Yeah, and I, I mean, you guys read it, so you guys definitely feel like overall this is a very solid adaptation. And I guess it probably lends itself to it because the the source material is 
relatively short too, right? Like, I mean, yes. it's a very About 150 brief. pages. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense how they could have done it so efficiently and still make it feel like it's a respectable adaptation. Mm hmm. So that makes sense. I will take up one thing just because James was uh, mentioning about Gloria Stewart. I, I disagree. I think that she's a really wonderful presence in the film, if not slightly underutilized or re really very oh, really uh, underutilized. Because <laughs> yeah. like she she's a great presence. I think. I think when we're first introduced to her, I mean, you know, not only is she beautiful, but I think that she conveys like a real genuine emotional quality towards Griffin, especially during um, his waning moments that I think elevate the the track of the picture so it, it would have been nice if we got more scenes with her she sort of just like bookends the film really but uh yeah it's a shame because i think that uh she's great they, her and um uh, claude rains kind of butted heads because she always like would uh kind of whine um to james whale kind of rightfully so because claude rains would always kind of like steal scenes from her and she would always like turn to james and be like he's doing it again and like james whale would kind of be like play nice claude like you know like this is her moment so she did uh, say that much about Claude Rains, but yeah, it's a shame because I think that she, I think that the film could have benefited from a few more scenes with them interacting. I I completely agree, and I I think what when I say that it's you could take her scenes out, you would have the same movie, and I don't disagree that if she had a few more scenes, I think her presence would be far more felt in this. Whereas she's literally there to be a pretty face and slightly humanize Griffin a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I I really like this movie and we're going to get to ratings in a little bit. But I, my knock against this movie is that that relationship is not more developed. And I wish that it was because um, she's the only actress, female actress in this entire movie. And I feel like oh, James is okay, point. Okay, well, Uno Kamara oh, okay, is yeah. talking to you, I guess. How, how dare uh, you forget Uno? Wow. How I, dare I'm gonna, you, I'm going to edit sir. that I forgot, I forgot yeah. Miss, uh, Mrs. Hall, my favorite actress. But what I'm saying is, like, I felt like she was shoehorned in because, like, well, we have to have a love interest, so there has to yeah, be this yeah. love interest here. And if you're going to go with that, really play it up. Make her, yeah. make that, and it'll make, uh, you know, Griffin a little bit more sympathetic. And speaking of love interests, I'm having a love affair with these super pretzels. Not a sponsor, but they could be. <laughs> <laughs> and bass beer. You know what goes good with super pretzels, James? Bass, bass beer. beer. These pretzels are making me thirsty. I do I do agree with all of that. Yeah. I, I guess like I mean, you guys are saying the the film wouldn't have uh, been really any different if she wasn't there, but I think that she is there um because if she wasn't there, I argue that we would maybe have a little bit more difficulty sympathizing with Claude Rains' character. I mean, you know, Gary even said, like, I mean, he's a bastard the whole time. So yeah. I think it was important, although she is really underserved in the film, she's there to kind of be like a presence that there is somebody out there that remembers this guy before he turned crazy. Like, he is a good guy. He is good. And somebody does give a shit about him. So I think, again, it, it's all just, they underserved her. That's that's really what it is. And I think that that's probably the only true weakness. And, you know, Connor's uh, squealing. That gets a little great. Yeah. At times. <laughs> um, just thinking about, just thinking about, like, if they remade this movie exactly the same way today. That oh, like in 2020? Sorry, like they did in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> that relationship would be the center of the movie, right? They base it around that relationship and her 100. trying to, her trying to bring him back and saying, right. I know what kind of guy you used to be like, and that's what I kind of expect it. And I think it would have, I think it would have benefited it. Yeah. I, I think if they were to do a 
proper remake of this movie, not a remake of the concept, which haven't seen it, but I hear the the 2021 was actually very good. Oh, we'll, we'll oh, get to it. It's very good. Yeah, yeah. we'll get to it. Great. We saw that but theater sticker. You know, you know, what we would definitely see if they were to remake it now, like just do a more or less shot for shot remake of this now. Yeah, we'd get the real ending from the book where the townspeople beat the shit out of Griffin. They beat him to death brutally, mm-hmm. and something that they don't touch on, if as long. As, I don't believe they touch on in the movie is if he bleeds, his blood will show once it dries, I believe Mm -hmm. it is. And so as he's being beaten to death, all of a sudden people's clothing is covered in blood and all of a sudden there's a body there. And it's as he's getting just, just bodied by these people yeah, he he appears, and everybody everybody in the town who's just part of this, you know, this group of, you know, it's a mob mentality, right? And like Frankenstein, <laughs> very much in the way of Frankenstein. <laughs> this movie called Frankenstein, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a mob mentality, and everybody who is in on it, including the the police officers who were part of this. Once they see when it when when the ire of their violence is invisible, mm-hmm. he's quite literally not human to them. And yeah. it's only once they see what they did that the mob breaks up and the cops are like, get a sheet to cover this. And it's it's a grisly ending in the book. Yeah. Far more grisly than, oh, he got shot. And then took a dies dies in bed in nice <laughs> nice pajamas. A little sleepy. I, I wanted to talk about that transitioning out of that kind of mob mentality. I was having so much fun with the the kind of creative ways the police were trying to capture him mm-hmm. and the angry mob just like roaming the countryside, just like poking every square inch with a stick trying to find him. I thought that was really fun. I love the the police all like joining hands, like hands across America, like just to make sure he couldn't he couldn't get through. Like that was it was goofy, but like creative, and I just was having a lot of fun with it. Like when they had camp, they had him wrapped up in the net. Yeah, I like when they wore a fence. That was nice. Yeah, Yeah. when they wore a fence. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's like that's a great point to bring up because you know we're talking about this and we've alluded to it, but this film is very funny and there is a a real like dark humor to this film Mm. um, that we haven't really you know dived into uh quite yet but yeah it's great i mean when when griffin um is kind of frustrated with the nosy townspeople in the very beginning and he sort of flees that hotel he just kind of goes buck wild around the neighborhood just kind of pissing people off and all these silly and sorts naked. yeah it's like he, he goes yeah he gets naked he like he's uh kind of like laughing maniacally again like a credit to claude rains like he's just bringing so much energy that's so like unhinged and nuts uh, but yeah, like we see him being goofy and like, you know, tripping people and doing this. He knocks a baby carriage over. <laughs> sure does. Okay, that's really cruel. Like, yeah, Jesus. Sure does. Father, how do you do? <laughs> you do our part. 
Mark Hamill based his Joker laugh on Claude Rains' laugh in this movie. Oh, wow. That makes so much sense, yeah. honestly. It, it is. It's that shrill, maniacal, pure crazy laugh. And yeah. I would say that Rains, Rains certainly, I think, invented it. And I would say that Hamill perfected it by the time, yeah. you know, Batman the Animated it's... Series rolled around. It's I'm also going like to say, it... while this is the, the funniest movie we've watched so far, and it's got a lot of that great slapstick, it's also the most violent, for sure. Oh. We see blood. <laughs> I think it's the first time we've seen actual blood, like a human bloody, when he pushes Mr. Hall down the stairs. He, like, murder, straight up murders Kemp in, like, a brutal way by driving him off a cliff. I mean, yeah. obviously, he kills all those fucking people on the train. It's brutal. There's that yeah, switch on the, the corner. that train. Yeah. Completely derails the train. But this movie is extremely violent. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's funny because we see an increase in violence. Dracula, there's basically zero violence on screen. No on-screen violence, yeah. And it's pre-code. Frankenstein, yeah. we see more of it. There's uh, there's Fritz's beatings of the monster. We see Fritz hanging. Yeah. The, there, there's uh, just a, the there's mummy, a very... We see... Go- well, we see the guy get gored on the spear in the mummy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a very like obvious divide between the invisible man and the other films, you know, al- although there, there is reason and cause to Griffin's actions. Obviously the monocane is, you know, turning him mad and stuff like that, but you can see the reason why he's doing it. It's not like Dracula where he's, he's kind of, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's taken by being a vampire and he must, you know, feed to survive in this. He's Griffin is literally turning matter as we go on in the film. We, we see it when he, uh, for, when he tries to force Kemp to assist him in his experiments, he sort of brazenly expresses just this desire to murder men of power and insignificant <laughs> men to demonstrate no yeah. bias. Like there's no reason he's just like, I'm just going to murder people. So this is just like he, there's no rhyme or reason. And in that way, Although he's being driven mad, it sort of feels more like almost like a slasher movie villain. Like he's just he just wants to murder as many people like that's his end game now because this drug is just, you know, messing him up. He's a super villain. I mean, he even says he wants to rule the world. And yeah. I think that, yeah. that's really, really cool. Like this is yeah. one of the first examples of that the comic book super villain, you know, and he would work opposing Batman, you know, and probably <laughs> probably fought the Invisible Man, I'm sure. Yeah. I can't help but think that there's an Elseworlds book out there where he teams up with Sherlock Holmes to take on the Invisible Man. And Jack the Ripper. It's like a tag team match. I'd watch that movie. <laughs> so good. Well, you know, you know, it's something when we were talking about the cast earlier, you know, who and we mentioned Dwight Fry and at Blinking You Miss Him seen as a reporter. We get we get John Carradine's first Universal Monsters appearance yeah. as a Cockney informer. Uh, Carradine, who we'll see play Dracula later on. Yeah, we'll see him uh, in House of Frankenstein too. Yeah, we'll see him uh, a few times. And Walter Brennan, who really, really well known for his westerns, uh, Red River, My Darling Clementine, Rio Bravo, and How the West Was Won. Mm-hmm. He was the guy who got his bike stolen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The, the bike, bike riding by itself him. effect is excellent. By the, way. Yeah. the bike yeah. just driving itself is really it's fun. so good. 
Um, yeah, yeah, there, there's very like there's only like one or two instances where if you're really looking, you can see a string or two. It's in the bike scene. And I think when we see like a hat floating but yeah again like very like you you really have to be going out of your way to spot them so again just like a real credit to how like clever and innovative they were into bringing these effects to life because they they so hold up it's it's so impressive to watch but I, none of it takes away i don't think that any one thing dominates this film i think the direction all the performances and the special effects go hand in hand with each other i don't think one necessarily overwhelms one or the other I, I still can't get over the scene where he first unwraps his head. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's so good. It's so, so good. good. Yeah, it's it's uh it's really uh Yeah, really that effect still holds up. The, this movie still holds up. So any other final thoughts before we go into ratings that you guys have? Anything we didn't touch on? Uh, um, I'm just really bummed out that Mike hates it so much and he thinks Karloff's performance is terrible. <laughs> yeah, he just he thinks Karloff is like so bad in this movie. <laughs> I just think no, I like re- really the the lead of this film, not Karloff. <laughs> the lead of this film, Claude Rains. I just think that he's so fantastic without even being, you know, visually present yeah. on screen for so much of it. Like again, the maniacal laugh, this intimidating anger, and I think this real genuine tenderness that he has towards Flora all contribute to the to this really multi-dimensional performance filled with tons of layers that really make up a man who's literally losing his mind on screen. But yeah, I mean, the, the film's great. You know, we, we all know when we're going to get to him, but, you know, it spawned five sequels in its wake. All of, you know, all of them, you know, their connections to this film are largely fragmented, but still, you know, this kind of birthed a very, very popular franchise for Universal. So I'm excited to get to many more of those. And then my last thought before ratings is that there's just some really great memorable lines of dialogue that like people don't talk about a lot. Like when he's when he's monologuing to Flora, he goes, we'll begin with a reign of terror. And I just think that that's so such bravado with that statement. I like that. I wrote down a couple other ones um, where he says he's talking to Kemp and he said, well, Kemp, you're going to do my bidding. And sometimes I'll just make you invisible because I need a rest from being invisible. I thought that was really fun. Yeah. Um, and what was the one other one? Oh, the one other one that I just was laughing at. And this, I think it was intentional. I think it was intentional to be funny. When he's talking to Kemp, he goes, one day I'll tell you everything, but there's not time now. And then he proceeds to tell him like a 10 minute long story about everything. And he goes, it it's all started five position, years ago. Yeah. yeah, I just thought that was really, really fun. Um, and that's, I guess, the best way for me to describe this entire movie. It's really fun. Oh. And then his, I think, I think we completely didn't mention too, um, his funniest moment when he's just like, when you see the pants and no top and he's just, he's like skipping down and like singing that nursery rhyme. That's the funniest moment of the film. Like I, I die watching that scene every time. It's great. (laughs) So we'll go around and do our typical ratings. We'll start with Frankenstein lover, mummy, hater, anti-carlite. Carloft, yes um yeah i mean i think we uh more or less said it but yeah i i love this movie i think it's great uh you know the innovative special effects this refreshing new cast that we have um without any really uh any recycled people in any major roles coming in just kind of brings a whole um you know kind of new air to this production uh james wales direction once again is spot on i mean you know he just continued to knock it out of the park i know i I expressed before but i think any one filmmaker it was james whale who kind of really um 
you know, sharpened sort of what we know uh, what a Universal Monster movie should be uh, just artistically, you know, throughout. So I, I think that here it's one of his best films. I love this film, uh, everything about it. Again, if there's any weaknesses to be had, I just think that the whole um, relationship with Flora, uh, Gloria Stewart's character, I think that she's pretty underutilized. She more or less bookends the film. So I think that injecting her a little bit more into the film with Claude Rains's character would have just benefited it tenfold. But again, that's just, you know, really, you know, slim pickings, but overall solid film. I love revisiting this film. I'm happy we talked about it, but uh, yeah, overall uh, 4.5 out of five for me, just a stellar universal monster film. James boys. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is awesome. <clears throat> and I love it. It's <laughs> it's a it's a lot of fun. It it is uh it could be funny and in the next breath it could be so tense and fraught. Is this the first time that we see a car going off a cliff and explode? into a giant ball of flames i don't know i like to think so and i'm just so glad that to this day that trope is still going even though it is complete bullshit <laughs> i meddled in things that man must leave alone and therefore i will give this four and three quarters stars it is equal in my heart to the mummy the mummy the, the mummy. yummy mummy bill, it, it is equal in my heart to bill mummy the mummy and pretzels <laughs> and uh yeah everything you guys said is spot on i think this is we're all in agreement this is the first movie we watched where we're all like yeah this is clearly awesome because yeah. this is this movie was great uh, it's the let's say this the best movie we've watched in this series so far sorry mike i know you have that you're, you named your car Frankenstein. You're... It is the second best. Although I gave the Frankenstein the same rating, I think that this is the second best that we. You are in the process of changing your legal name to Frank and Stein, which is yes, going to be weird because your wife's name is also Frankenstein, so her name's going to be Frankenstein Stein. It's going to be yes. very repetitive. <laughs> you um, have that big Boris Karloff back tattoo. You love Frankenstein. <laughs> I think this is, is, is such a great movie, and it's underrated. I'm going to call it an underrated movie because when you talk about Universal Monster movies, this is maybe like fourth, fifth, sixth on like the lexicon of the Mount or the Mount Rushmore of Universal Monsters here. Claude Rains is awesome at what he does. He steals every scene. Um, James Whale's great. The special effects still hold up. I was still watching this going, how the hell did they do that? Still to, yeah. still to this day, I don't know how they did a lot of that stuff. So mm-hmm. really, really love this movie. I was so into Invisible Man this past two weeks because I read the book and I watched the movie. So um, we talked about our rating scale a little bit beforehand. And um, I can't, I, I changed my view during this. I can't give it a five. I wanted to, I wanted to give it a five, but that, like Mike said, that relationship with um, Flora, I wish it was just a, just give it a few more minutes to flesh that out. I'm going to go with a four. And three quarters, 4.75 for yeah. this, because I think this is a nearly perfect movie and the best movie we've watched so far. That's right. Eat shit, Mike. <laughs> wow. 
because apparently we're uh, in case you listeners don't know we're evaluating skating scores now that's that's how we do things <laughs> it's our show and our ratings however we want to do it yes, i said i might uh, rate things in the alphabet so if this yes, is the alphabet we, yeah. we, we we should clear the air for our listeners just so we no, know we that <laughs> I only do that because I just think that it's an easier way to round it. And I just think that it's true to like how other uh, film critics have done it, like Siskel and Ebert and Joe Bob. Okay. So I think I, I that's why Mike's I on those levels. Mike's on the same level. Yeah, yeah, yeah Mike, exactly. Mike I mean, me and me and Siskel and Ebert. Um, Leonard Malton. I was yeah. just about to say Leonard Malton. <laughs> I love Leonard Malton. Leonard Malton's great. I think I if I, so I might rate things. You guys can do your ratings. I might rate things on a scale of 100. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give this a 47. <laughs> so on a scale of 100, I think this is a 97 or a 98. What year did Steven Soderbergh direct The Mummy? Exactly. Uh, 1999. <laughs> <laughs> Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> but uh yeah that wraps us up for the invisible man i really enjoyed watching this movie i might rewatch it frequently because it's is a really fun watch what do we got next i think we got bride of frankenstein you guys yeah, ever heard of that yes. episode five is bride of frankenstein that leads the question do we have bride of frankenstein next or do we have werewolf of london next uh theatrically bride of frankenstein came out theatrically first. werewolf of london did it i thought we discussed this last time we didn't oh yeah so it's probably, we, a question, it's probably a question better, a conversation better for off the podcast. Yeah. Let's <laughs> cut this out. So yeah. what are we watching next? <laughs> well, yeah, can we look that up real quick? <laughs> well, I'm looking on that website that you sent, Mike, and it has... Uh, Is it Werewolf of London? It has Werewolf of London before... Bride, they came out the same year. Bride of Frankenstein was... Uh, What's the uh, release date? April 20th, 1935. I'll look up Werewolves of London. I have that book in front of me, too. Oh, well, Bride of Frankenstein comes up first in this book. Interesting. Let me see if they actually list the, the release like, date. Your your website is bullshit, then. <laughs> it says, yeah, Bride of Frankenstein is May 6th, 1935. And then let me see what Werewolf of London is. Ow. June 3rd, 1935. Thanks. When we do Werewolf of London, we all have to drink pina coladas from Trader Vic's. Okay. And I get a big... Uh, a, get a big dish of beef chow mein. So should we just uh, kind of redo uh, a little yeah, closing and then say Bride of Frankenstein? Yeah, so what what, what do we have to go... Um, what are we watching next, right? Yeah, so... Wraps a little bit. So Mike, what are we watching next? Next, for episode five, we are watching The Bride of Frankenstein from 1935. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. <laughs> oh, you will. <laughs> now here's a question. Gary. Yeah. Have you seen Bride of Frankenstein? Yeah, have you seen this film? Uh, we weren't supposed to talk about this because people <laughs> wouldn't find me a credible host. Um, I have never seen Bride of Frankenstein. I'm so excited for you. But this is actually very, yeah, this is very exciting that for such a monumental universal monster film that like we have somebody that is not, has not seen it. So it's going to give a real cool dimension to the next episode. I'm, I'm beyond excited to talk I've about seen, it. I've seen pretty much everything else. I just, for whatever reason, Bride of Frankenstein eluded me it's too my good life. For your, it's too good for you. That's probably it, yeah. I was <laughs> too busy watching like Sleepwalkers on repeat as a kid. <laughs> I've ever seen, Mike and I were talking about Sleepwalkers the other yeah. day. Some They kill a cop with an ear of corn. It's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about Bride of Frankenstein next in two weeks. My first viewing of it. Um, maybe we'll do something special for my first viewing. Like film my reactions or something like that. this better live up to the hype by the way 
Uh, that's the problem. I've got a feeling that you're going to wind up scoring it low because it's built up so high. Well, we haven't like really gone into like why it's so great. You just know from history. Yeah, don't tell me. Just don't yeah. tell me. Yeah. True. Yeah. So yeah. So very exciting. James, want to tell us where tell the the world where they can find us on the internets? Uh, social media. Yes. Oh, you want me to go into a detail? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> find us on Facebook. Uh, I don't know. I'm not on there, so I don't know what our group is called. Is it the Monster Rally Podcast on Facebook? It is the Monster Rally Podcast. Cool. Join us. Follow. Uh, join the group Monster Rally Podcast on Facebook. We share pictures and articles and a little discourse, perhaps, if you're feeling frisky. On Instagram and Twitter, we are at Monster Rally Pod. We are Monster Rally Pod. Pad? No, that's <laughs> Pad. Monster Rally Pod. That's the house we're all going to live in, the Monster Rally Pad. Yeah, the, that's where we're all going <laughs> to, that's our compound. Yes. Uh, Monster Rally Pod at gmail.com if you have any questions, concerns, or you're worried about Mike's well being when Gary uh, <laughs> breaks his heart by rating. Uh, he gives Bride of Ranks really two. <laughs> <laughs> uh we again tim cook caved like the coward that he is and we are on apple Podcasts now we did so it please, we did no it. <laughs> whatever your podcatcher of choice please rate and review follow us there subscribe if you if you give us some nice reviews we will maybe read them on air gary might <laughs> gary might turn it into a rap you never know uh, but we really do appreciate all of you who yes. have uh, engaged with us and uh, support us. And we are looking forward to doing this for a good long while. Very much so. Forever. Forever. Our reign of terror has just begun. Yes. There it is. Yeah, that's how we should end it. But now we're going to keep talking. And I, uh... yeah. Let's, yeah, let's go. Uh, let's go catch some moonlight and pretzels. Let's go. <laughs> all right. Till next time, everybody. All right, guys. Thank you.